we have one task to proclaim the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. The whole church must be mobilized to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. This is our calling. These are our orders. Welcome to this Lausanne Europe 2021 podcast. Our guest is Jim Memory. He teaches European mission at Redcliffe College. He is the editor of Vista Journal and is part of the leadership team of the European Christian Mission. He is also one of the leaders of the Lausanne Europe 2021 initiative. And he has written one of the articles featured in the June conversation entitled Reconciliation in the Conflicted Continent. And Jim, you start your article by reviewing history and note the unprecedented peace that we have had since 1945. But then you warn against a couple of isms which could ruin this peace. What are they and what dangers do they represent? Yes, good morning. It's, uh, uh, it's a great question. Um, I often say when I think back over uh, my life, um, I'm 54 years old and I have never had to pick up a gun to defend my home, uh, my home country. And uh, that's an extraordinary anomaly in European history. We've, we, we take for granted the peace in Europe very much. Uh, but our generation has been hugely blessed to live through um, an, a very unusual period of European history where we've had peace and prosperity. But there are many forces which um, threaten that. Um, in my article, I particularly focus in on nationalism and populism and specifically um, the, the fusion of those two in national populism or what some people call populist nationalism. Um, so to explain a little bit uh, where I'm coming from, uh, nationalism is something that we, we're very familiar with in Europe in its historical form. Uh, we know very well that it's led to many wars over the last few centuries and most recently that period of, um, of conflict in the middle of the 20th century, which we remember as the Second World War. But um, it's, it's an ever-present, it's there in the background of the Balkan conflict in the 90s, it's there in the um, other uh, conflicts that uh, there have been. And nationalism really is about uh, identity and belonging. It is a, uh, a discourse, a conversation around the concept of what the nation is, uh, who belongs to it, and who doesn't belong to it. And um, we, we set up a, uh, a group of people who are seen as us, and we name a group of people who we see as other. And that opposition between people uh, at that level, that horizontal opposition uh, between peoples is what nationalism is about. That contrasts with populism, because populism is between the people and the elites. It's a, a vertical opposition between those who are uh, seen to be part of the people and those who are seen to be oppressing the people, whether they are, as I say, elites or media 
or politicians or ECB or bankers or whatever. Um, and when those two are fused together, you get national populism, populist nationalism. Um, populism used to be very much a feature of the left. Uh, back in 1980, maybe only one in 10 uh, populists were of the right wing. 90% were left wing populists. But that has swung completely the opposite way now. And uh, in most cases, populism is understood uh, in its nationalist form. Um, and you can find that uh, everywhere. But why has these powerful groups come on the scene just now? Well, um, I don't think it's just now. Uh, I think, as I say, nationalism has been around a long time, but I think this fusion of populist nationalism um, and not so much the existence of, of parties or individuals who hold those opinions, but the traction that they're getting in, in European societies now. It's a very good question. Why is that? Why are we seeing so much more of it now? Um, I think there are two, two ways to look at it. One looks at it from the negative perspective. And that's where, uh, in the article, I, I quote from uh, Eatwell and Gladwell's book, and they identify what they call four Ds, which are contextual reasons why we have this situation. Um, and the four Ds are distrust of our politicians, a perceived deprivation of people's economic advantages, a destruction, again perceived, of native cultures, and then a dealignment of historical political parties. And those four things combined together, uh, they particularly look at some examples and look at the at Brexit actually as an example of the dynamics of that. Um, distrust of, 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 of politicians, how many people thought that they, they were being economically disadvantaged and therefore wanted to leave the European Union, wanted to get back control of borders and so on. Um, a destruction or perceived destruction of nativist culture, that migrants are destroying uh, the way we uh, know things to be. And um, a weakening of the traditional uh, centre political parties uh, and the de-alignment. So now people are no longer voting for the same people that they used to. And so they suggest that those four factors are uh, generating more national populism across Europe. But I think there's also a positive aspect. To it. And when I say positive, what I mean is, is that people are not only uh, voting for national populist parties because of negatives. I think they, they see that they have positive reasons for voting. Um, general, generals, generally, um, national populists, popular, popular nationalists, present a clear vision of the future. Um, simple solutions for the problems. Um, they often use very good slogans, which, uh, yes, are massively simplistic, but they appeal to people. Um, there is a call to unity, to get behind things that people are familiar with, and um, often Christians get suckered into that as well by the use of Christian symbolism. Um, and, uh, and often there is a, a, an actual person. Um, in that sense, it's also populist. There is a figurehead who is a real person, not just some faceless bureaucracy or another three-letter uh, acronym or, or whatever. There is actually a person. And of course, that's why often those people too get 
um, turned into almost cartoon characters. So we talk about Boris, or we talk about um, Orban. Uh, you know, I'm not putting those in the same category, but the 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 turning of the person uh, in, into a figurehead is also, I think, a positive factor why people vote in that direction. Are there uh, specific areas of Europe uh, that are more vulnerable than others in this respect? If you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I probably would have said, mm, yes, probably. You, you would point to the center of Europe, to Eastern Europe, which is where at that time um, populist nationalism was most clearly seen. But over the last 10 years, um, it has become a phenomenon almost everywhere. It's, it's actually quite difficult now to find a country that does not have a uh, national populist party of some kind. Um, I live in Spain, and Spain still has very much a memory of, uh, of the recent, uh, well, not so recent, but of Franco and the, uh, the period of dictatorship which stretched through to the mid-70s. Um, and uh, was always a country where you would you would struggle to find a, an extreme uh, right wing party that was uh, going to get voted uh, for. Now we do have one. We have the Vox Party, which got uh, fifteen percent in the last national election, and is a constant thorn in the side, not just of the left but also of the right, as they seek to um, push the the agenda further in that direction. And, uh, and accuse other right-wing parties of being soft and uh, not truly patriotic. So the, the, the presence of national populist parties across Europe is a real challenge today. Uh, in your article, you mentioned uh, some examples of Christians who have made a difference in uh, recent uh, European history. Uh, what are they? <laughs> Well, um, yes, in my article, I make a point of um, uh, lauding the, the influence of Robert Schuman. Um, but I actually found this quite a challenging question as I was thinking about it. Um, who are the Christians who are really making a difference in, in Europe today? Um, and I think looking back at our more recent history, we can think of writers and um, uh, people that have influenced, because it's not just politicians. Um, we're talking about um, artists and academics and thinkers, um, authors. Um, people that came to mind were people like, uh, on the politicians, people like Fred Catherwood, who was very influential during the 1970s and 80s. But um, maybe in the future, we'll look back at Angela Merkel and say that she had a, a very significant influence as a Christian during this period, certainly as a peacemaker uh, and as um, somebody who, who led uh, Europe uh, through some very challenging times, thinking of the migrant crisis and so on. Um, then you've got people, people like Lewis, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, whose, whose writings have influenced uh, many in our generation. Or people like Bono, you know, singers and cultural figures. Um, I think all of that goes to show, and then, people, and then you've got acad academics like John Lennox and people like that who, who, who have a, a, a say. I, I think in many ways it's actually made me, made me reflect on how democratized in some ways influence is today. It's not just a matter of 
um, politicians, but um, people can be a, a tremendously influential without even realizing it. Um, I might even say, this is it's quite a strong thing to say, but you know, that the, a month ago, the, the name George Floyd meant nothing to anybody. And yet his name and his influence in his death and the way that um, that has affected the conversation uh, around race and society in Europe is very significant. So I think probably what I would say is, is that we, we need a, a whole raft of people across every discipline of life, pastors, part politicians, um, everybody to be involved in influencing wherever they are. Uh, you are one of the leaders of uh, the, the Europe 2021 uh, initiative uh, where the conversation encompasses uh, lots of groups of influencers uh, all over uh, Europe um, for the next year or so. Um, do you think that could be... Uh, part of the contribution from Christians in, in Europe? I would, forward? I would love that that was the case. Um, I think it, what we're trying to do with each of the uh, months of the conversation is to highlight crucial aspects of what it means to be a Christian in Europe today. Um, there are There is a focus on mobilizing for mission there's a focus on discipleship but there's also a focus on the scripture and prayer but also on the issues and this issue is about reconciliation um and although the conversation today has been at a top level big picture around what reconciliation mean in europe today um the reality is that reconciliation begins with our personal relationships um it begins at the level of the people that we know um, people that are on our street, in our town, in our church. And um, that's where we need to begin um, to make, it, make a difference. And uh, if we can, across the whole of Europe, be reflecting on these things, who knows where the next um, Bonhoeffer, the next Robert Schumann is going to come from, but they will have had um, an experience of reconciliation in their lives. Um, through their personal experience before they can ever make a difference on a, on a big scale. Well, we will follow uh, this in the next year or so and uh, see where it leads and, and what the results are. Thank you, dear memory, uh, and uh, we will talk to you again. Thank you.